Okay, well, uh, welcome everybody. My name's um, David Gellner. I'm uh, an anthropologist, um, and I'm the uh, head of the Department of Anthropology at the moment, although only for a couple more weeks. Um, and I've been working on Nepal, on various you know, things, religion, politics, or ethnicity, all kinds of things to do with Nepal for over 30 years now. Uh, and but in the last three years, I've found myself working on Nepalese in this country. I never imagined that uh, the people that I was studying would sort of follow me back to the UK, but they have. And um, so uh, the last three years, I've been uh, directing a project looking at this, which is probably the newest of the UK's uh, ethnic minorities. And um, the team who've been helping me, most of them are here. I'll, I will introduce them in a minute. Um, but let me start with the title. Uh, uh, you've probably all heard of Joanna Lumley, and I expect you've all heard about her stunning success in winning the right for all ex-Gurkha soldiers with more than four years continuous service to settle in this country. And it was a kind of uh, astonishing campaign, uh, astonishing because newspapers that who would normally be the last to support any kind of migration into this country were the strongest supporters. And it was astonishing. I mean, it, I think everybody got the basic moral argument that if people are willing to die for this country, they really ought to be, in this kind of globalized world, be given the right to live in it if they so wish. Uh, so, as I say, from 2009, they, they won this right. And uh, subsequently, a very large number of rather old ex-Gurkhas who had never expected to come and live in this country did come and live here. Now, whereas the ones who were already here had a degree of education and spoke English, so on a lot of these older people do, did not, do not, uh, and came direct from their villages to uh, the UK. And an extremely large number of them settled around the Farnborough-Aldershot area, Greater Rushmore Borough Council. Uh, why? Because that's, it's an old, it's, a, it's astonishing and interesting historical pattern that Gurkha soldiers have long settled down outside the gates of the military camp where they used to serve. Because after all, it's the place they know. Many of them did not want to go back to Nepal. They bought land, started businesses or whatever. Uh, yeah. So wherever, in, or throughout the Indian subcontinent, in Dehradun, in um, northeast India, and so on, the same pattern. And here in the UK, it's the same. Every single UK garrison has at least some Nepali Nepalese living nearby. Even Catterick in Yorkshire, up Scotland, the same is true. Now, what happened next was that, so we got at least 9,000 uh, Nepalis suddenly coming to live in the Greater, Borough, Greater Rushmore Borough Council area. And a, a lorry driver called Sam Phillips suddenly found that he couldn't get an appointment at the, uh, uh, his, uh, the doctor's surgery for his wife because there was such an enormous queue of Nepalis there. So he started a Facebook page, which suddenly got a lot of publicity and a lot of followers. They absolutely insist that they are not racist, but that what they are protesting against is the sort of large immigration of people not speaking English who um, uh, suddenly arrive and, the, and basically the government has not, the government has allowed people to come but it hasn't provided the facilities to cope with them. So, controversy in Aldershot. Um, I have to say, when I was... Uh, um, do you want to come and sit at the front with the rest of the team? I'm going to introduce everybody in a minute. Um, uh, the, um, when I was growing up as a teenager, just down the road from Aldershot, uh, outside a place called Petersfield, um, if you had told me that in mid late middle age, my idea of a good day out would be to go down to Aldershot. I would have thought you needed your head examined. Um, I mean, I, all my ideas were to get away, and you know, I didn't yet know I was going to work on Nepal. But the idea that Aldershot would be a fascinating, exotic, and interesting place to spend a day had not certainly it would, it would have been would have been completely balmy. So here we are. We've got a, a large number of elderly people who are not, of course, allowed to bring their children because their children are not dependents anymore. Their children are sort of in their 40s or whatever. 
uh, arriving on their own. There are some, some tragic tales of kind of old couples who come and like two or three months later, one of the couple dies and then, you know, say the widow is left with a body and having to take it back to Nepal and so on. Um, and uh, as I say, not speaking English, and suddenly, um, you know, the streets are full of uh, old people, uh, very much looking as if they still lived in a Nepali village. Uh, and top of which, there's also been controversy about how they got here, that one of the uh, ex-Gurkha organizations has been accused of taking money from them in order to get them to England. In other words, saying, you have to give us this, this amount of money and we will arrange for you to come to the UK and, and, and profiting off the back of that and certain law firms also doing the same. Um, those are the charges. Anyway, there have been serious, several minor, I mean, by the standards of kind of... Uh, 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 racial intolerance elsewhere, uh, or even in other parts of the UK, it's, I don't think it's, the situation is nearly as serious. Nonetheless, there were sufficiently worrisome incidents and, and threats and violence and gang fights and so on that uh, it was decided something had to be done. Uh, and one of the things that was done was this big event that we attended in, back in February um, uh, called the Best of Both, which is not a form of sliced bread. It was meant to say the best of indigenous British culture and the best of Nepali culture. In the middle, you've got Gerald Howard, who's the local MP, also uh, Minister of Defence, and um, uh, he caused some controversy a year earlier where he wrote an open letter to David Cameron saying, look, there's been this influx and you haven't given us any money. Uh, so the government did provide a kind of £100,000 or something fairly tokenistic to, to try and help. Uh, but of course, it, talking about influxes and flooding and using this kind of emotive language did not go down at all well um, with the sort of more educated and the leaders of the Nepali community, one of whom, uh, one of the uh, most impressive um, of the local leaders, as you can see there, wearing the Nepali hat, uh, Major Tikendra Dewan. He leads one of the biggest ex-Gurkha organizations, the BGWS, and is a very vocal and powerful advocate for Gurkha rights. And one of the things that they're still fighting for, of course, is equal pensions. They may have the right to settle here, but they don't have a right to the same pension that British soldiers have. So there he, he's, so the MP, Gerald Howarth, is flanked on his right. And on the left, the MC, is this very Sam Phillips, the one who started the Facebook page, uh, who has been, if you like, thanks to the help of various people working behind the scenes and working very hard to improve community relations, was persuaded to build bridges and not. So he's not. He's by no means a, a, a racist or a BNP supporter or anything like that. He, uh, so he basically acted as the MC for the whole program. There, was lots of, there were lots of um, local white girls dancing, kind of X-Factor type disco dancing, and then there were lots of young Nepali girls doing Nepali dances. There were military bands. Uh, there were loads of stalls selling stuff, also charity stalls and so on. So it was a... And, um, uh, it was meant to be um, a, a big kind of love-in. And the one thing that's really meant to help is the fact that you have a, now have an integrated Nepali white football team. So there they are at the top, um, uh, who are now going to play in the local leagues, with not, not against each other, but together on the same side. So this is, this is the, um, the research project for which we got money from the AHRC and DSRC under... It's their religion, joint religion in society program, which is just now this year uh, drawing to its close. Um, and um, although they've heard me talk about this so many times before, they couldn't keep away. So here I'd like to introduce uh, my uh, co-investigator, Dr. Sandra Hausner, who's lecturer in uh, religious studies, in the uh, study of religion in this university. Uh, but Dr. Bhagavad Shrestha, who is the, the kind of full-time researcher, because of course I had no... He, get, he, got, he gets to have all the fun of actually doing the field work. I, I have to stay in beheaded apartment and, um, uh, and sort of direct the project. Uh, uh, and one of the things that would be most wonderful about this project is collaborating with uh, Nepali intellectuals who are themselves trained social scientists uh, who have settled in this country and set up the Centre for Nepal Studies UK. Uh, because, of course... Well, first of all, because they know their own society far better than we ever could and have all kinds of access uh, and, and understanding and, 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 and so on that, that, you know, that we can build on. But also, one of the fascinating and um, charming things, actually, is to see them discovering stuff about their own society that they didn't know. Because as I shall shortly explain to you, Nepali society is incredibly complicated. So no one actor within Nepali society can ever know all the other uh, different religions or ethnic groups. So they've actually discovered an awful lot about their own 
history in society. So uh, uh, Dr. Krishna Adhikari, who's now here with us, and uh, Dr. Uh, Chandra Laksamba. And also, uh, part of one of the nice things about these grants from the ESRC and AHRC is you're allowed to build in um, a doctoral uh, research studentship, um, which can be, has to be, on the one hand, it has to be self-standing and independent and viable, even if your own project collapses. On the other hand, it can actually add value, and the student can also hopefully uh, learn a lot by being part of a wider project, looking at the sort of general context of the same thing. So Flo Gurung, who hopefully will soon be Dr. Flo Gurung, is, is also here, and she's actually been living in Farnborough, in the heart of the community, for uh, a year and a half, and, and therefore participating in, in, in things in a way that those of us who kind of have jobs in the university can't possibly do. So this is what we told the AHRC we were going to do, and I think we've more or less done it. Um, so the kind of big, but you have to kind of put these grandiose claims in if you want to get the research money. Um, one was to try and actually see, and I'll come to this right at the end, whether there is some, whether it can actually teach us something different about the concept of what a religion is. And the second thing, and this was partly answering to their call for projects, was to look very precisely at the religious texts, the religious objects, the things that people actually use, the materiality, if you want to use the fancy uh, academic term, uh, of religion, uh, and how, how Nepalis use that to express their different allegiances. And again, I'll, I'll come to that in probably more detail than you could possibly want. So this is what we actually did. These were our mi mixture of methods. We did do a standard um, sort of sociological type survey of 300 households. Um, Although I'd like to think that the actual content of the survey was very unstandard from what sociologists would normally ask about. I mean, we got collected the normal sort of demographic data, but we also got a, asked a lot of very detailed questions about what kinds of rituals people did and how often they did them and where, what uh, festivals they participated in, etc., etc. We did a lot of uh, open-ended interviews with people, and some of those are still going on. Participant observation, that was... Um, Mostly Bhagavad and Flo who did that, and Flo, as I mentioned, was living, actually living in, in, uh, in, in Farnborough. And this is what actually now been changed. This building here, this is us very early in the fieldwork doing a kind of group interview with one of the Hindu pundits who's employed by the British Brigade of Gurkhas. So they had a building which was a Hindu temple, they've now got a new one nearby. Um, but that's us going to talk to the pundit about his work and, and, and so on. So briefly, as I say, it's one of the newest uh, uh, minorities in the UK. The, um, the, the census in uh, 2001 listed less than 6,000 people born in Nepal. And um, uh, this is, you know, it's gone from zero to 60 and very, very fast. Uh, and we now think it's probably over 100,000. Uh, difficult to know. I mean, the, the, our, our survey built on CNS UK, who did their own survey, uh, and they surveyed, they kind of went right around the country, employed local community leaders, and came up with a, a total figure of um, uh, 72,173. Now, that's a kind of spuriously accurate figure because, of course, the figure changes all the time. You've got people coming in, people going out. But they had to, it was part of their own feeding back to the community. They had to say, we've got a, you know, uh, uh, we've, got, we've come up with a figure, but people keep arriving, uh, so it's probably over 100,000. The biggest areas where they are settled, as I already mentioned, the number one is probably Farnborough, uh, Aldershot area, and also spilling over the border into Surrey, places like Mitchett and, um, and so on, Camblin. Um, um, number two may be either, well, they, there's a lot, but, or the, anyway, closely, coming up closely behind, there are three areas. Two in London, which don't have anything to do with Gurkha settlement, and one in Ashford, Kent, which certainly does. So the two bits, places in London are East London, around Plumstead, and West London, around Wembley, which any of you know that area will know is largely South Asian area anyway. Um, uh, but that does flag up the fact, of course, that not all... My title may suggest that all Nepalis in this country have to do with the Gurkhas. That's not the case. Probably about 60 or slightly over 60% are either ex-Gurkhas or their dependents. But that means the rest, of course, 40% are not. There are an awful lot of other people. There are doctors who actually started coming a lot earlier. There are a lot of nurses. There are at least 700 Nepali nurses working for the NHS or in the private sector, uh, in a lot of nursing homes and so on. Um, 
care homes. And um, there, are, there are lots of students, and lots, lots of categories of people, a lot of people working in IT and, and so on as well. Um, one of the questions academics who work in this kind of area like to debate a lot is, what is a diaspora? What does, what, do, what does a group of migrants have to do in order to be a diaspora? And do they have to think of themselves as a diaspora to be a diaspora or not? And you, academics like to have the same debates about nations uh, and, and, and ethnic groups. Um, uh, and one of the kind of older established diaspora lines is, is, oh, well, no, you can't possibly be a real diaspora unless you've been around for two or three generations, you know, because you might be assimilating for all we know. Um, you can't be a proper diaspora. But the point, thing is, of course, this, this diaspora actually calls itself a diaspora. They have diaspora organizations. They use the word of themselves. So it's a bit hard for academics to come along and say, well, actually, you may think you're a diaspora, but you're not. Um, but I think, well, one of the things that you certainly have to do to be a diaspora is you have to be outside your homeland. So if you have no concept of a homeland, or if you have no concept of a frontier or boundary between your homeland and what's not in the homeland, then it's slightly more problematic. So clearly, the people who now live in Nepal have been moving around for a long time. Okay? Mobility is a historic fact, and the, the, the direction of mo mobility has generally been from west to east through the Himalayas. So people who used to live up in the northwest, and you now find them, a lot of them, sort of much further eastwards. And that's partly to do with the fact that there's more rain and the land is more fertile the more further east you go. And that whether that movement, it can be called a diaspora, is very dubious. But certainly Nepalis were moving out of what is now Nepal into Darjeeling, into Sikkim, further eastwards into Assam long and long ago. Um, you know, certainly in the uh, second half of the 19th century already, maybe even earlier. And some of them kept going. Some of them kept moving from Assam and kept going into Burma, and some of them kept going even beyond Burma into Thailand. And those people now are starting to think of themselves as a diaspora, but probably didn't in the past. In, uh, the other thing I have to, have to say is that the border between Nepal and India is completely open. So anybody can cross it at any time. I mean, anybody who's either a Nepali or an Indian citizen may cross it at any time without any control. So that means Nepalis have been going down to work in India also for a very long time. And that, that trend picked up enormously in the 60s, 70s. Very poor Nepalis from the far west of Nepal have been just popping over the border into what's now Uttarakhand and working on roads and doing other portering work and so on for a very long time. So that's been going on for a long time. In the 80s, late 80s onwards, we start to get the beginning of globalization, the beginning of mass migration, and you start to get also a kind of massive uh, takeoff in the number of people who are going abroad for education. So, so some of this is diagrammed here. As you can see, large flows of uh, Nepalis going to the big Indian cities. And one of the fascinating things is that particular districts of Nepal tend to specialize in particular cities. There's a kind of chain migration. So all the Nepalis from Bhajang in the far west of Nepal go to Bangalore and have a, they have a lock on the, uh, the, um, uh, the, the jobs as door guardians or chokidars, as they're called in India, in that city. And they have a kind of mutual aid uh, organizations among themselves. This is, this, these are some estimates. These are estimates only from the uh, global non-resident Nepali organization trying to work out how many Nepalis there are in which countries. And as you can see, large numbers are going to Australia. Enorm the numbers in Burma I've talked about, that's an estimate, whether it's really a quarter of a million. Nobody really knows. Uh, very large numbers working in factories in Malaysia uh, and Saudi Arabia and the other Arab countries. Um, uh, well over 100,000 in the USA, and that's growing all the time. So, what we, that's the kind of background. What we're interested in is how people are recreating their traditions, their culture, and their, specifically their religion in the home and outside of it in this country. So one of the things, the easiest things to do, of course, is to have a small shrine at home, and almost everybody does. Not everybody, but certainly the vast majority do have some kind of shrine, and we try to do a study of that systematically, which I'll come to in a minute. The other thing that they do is to, um, is, is an astonishing amount of organization of formal religious teaching. So the kind of religious teachings that you would get in Nepal, you can also get here, and sometimes, in fact, more. So Buddhists from Nepal are plugged into 
Theravada and Tibetan Buddhist networks, and Hindus are plugged into the kind of uh, pundit teacher network. Some of them are Nepali, like Dinbandu Pokhara, who's a well-known teacher who comes through on a regular basis, uh, and um, others are a kind of well-known Indian gurus, and there are some more you know, uh, smaller-scale sects, like the chap in the middle there in the white is from um, Rajneesh uh, Osho organization. The other thing to say is that there are not, a, not quite a few uh, uh, Nepalis who are now Christians. And um, there seems to be an increasingly, uh, the, I say on the PowerPoint, up only 2.2% in the UK apparently, probably is more than that. Certainly it's going to be more than that, I think, maybe not, in, once we get the 2011 census figures from Nepal. Um, but certainly paralleling the rise of Christianity in the, 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 in, in the tribal belts of India, which has been happening since the 19th century, certainly now with uh, political and religious freedom in Nepal, uh, there's, being, there's being a large number of conversions in Nepal as well. And every three months, the uh, Nepali Christians in this country get together in a different part. That's, these are pictures from a meeting in Reading that Bhagavad went to. And sometimes you get some very interesting combinations. This particular picture on the right are from a couple where um, um, the husband is a Roman Catholic, but his wife is a Hindu kind of follower of Sai Baba. So they've got a nice picture of Jesus, but Sai Baba in his heart. Now, the very impressive thing, as I say, is the rise of these um, uh, uh, diaspora organizations. There are now well over 300 in this country, so very short, in an extremely short period of time. Within 10 years, you've got 300 different types of organizations. You've got political organizations, you have literary organizations, you have organizations to defend the rights and the, uh, uh, preserve the culture of particular ethnic groups or castes. You have uh, regional organizations, that's to say based on particular districts or regions or even a group of villages within Nepal, so it will get together once a year for a barbecue and send money back. But you also have local regional organizations based on particular regions in this country, like the greater Reading Nepali community, or the Oxford. In fact, Oxford, is, Oxford has managed to have two now because there's been a split, um, and so on. So um, the, uh, uh, there's, there's a really extraordinary number and vibrancy of different organizations. Whether those will survive or not in the future is it will be very interesting to see. There's you know, very lively, there's uh, two or three weekly Nepali newspapers that come out and circulate. And th when these first started out, these were kind of highly subsidized, or what the first one was highly subsidized by the Maoists and was a kind of political rag, they've both uh, converted into kind of genuinely commun genuine community organizations. It's very, you can tell from the, the advertising and the kind of reporting that they've come to, rather than being a, a voice, a mouthpiece of a political party, they are genuinely reflecting the interests uh, of, of, of the community they're serving. So these are, these are some pictures from Oxford itself. Uh, where I mean, Oxford is not such an enormous community. It's about uh, probably sort of 80 or 100 households, uh, if you include the ones in sort of Oxfordshire as a whole. But they get together um, at least twice a year for the big festivals, the New Year Festival, and then the kind of Dasai Tiha Festival in October. And um, they also have other kind of religions. These ones actually from the, the Women's Festival of Tij. So let me say, I, but what, one of the things that I want to try and analyze here is what does it mean? What does it mean to say somebody is a Buddhist or a Hindu or something else? And we have to think very deeply about the, what, is, what, is, what do we mean when we talk about religion? What is the translation of the word religion in South Asian languages? And the term dharma, which is the kind of normal translation, actually traditionally has far more... Uh, far bigger connotation than simply what we think of as religion. It can be translated as ritual, as duty, uh, and uh, it, it's much bigger and more, and, and more capacious than simply religion. And what is more, the modern conception is that we're only supposed to have one religion, we're not supposed to have many, and that is also a very new idea in the, the subcontinent. And the quotation I put up is, is, is sort, of, sort of illustrates this. It, was the, it consists of the instructions that were given to the census enumerators in the first Nepali census in the early 50s. And 
because if you just ask somebody, what is your dharma, people, that wasn't a question people were used to answering. And they certainly weren't used to thinking, oh, I have to, there's a list of five or six possibilities and I have to choose one and stick to that. That was something that Nepalis had to learn over, this, over the decades. And um, so uh, basically they, 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 you know, the enumerator said, oh, well, look, you know, if they worship the five major Hindu deities, put them down uh, as Hindus. Uh, and then put these following groups, uh, actually all Nawas, uh, and then Lamas and Takalis, put them down as Buddhists. And um, this is actually the procedure which many activists claim has continued to be practiced over the years. The census enumerators don't even bother to ask people the religious question. They just automatically put down Hindu, unless people lean over and say, hang on a minute, I'm not a Hindu, I'm a Buddhist. Uh, or unless the only other case in which they won't put down Hindu is if the person obviously is a Muslim and they're called Muhammad. Uh, Ilyas or something. So these are the actual figures for religious affiliation in Nepal itself. And the thing that you need to, 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 to the only thing to take away from this is the fact that the percentage of Buddhists has changed enormously over the years. So it started in the very first census as 8.6 and then during the years of the Panchayat regime which was trying to f foster a pan-Hindu um, national identity, it went down to 7.5% in 1971, 5.3% in 1981. So, in other words, the figures were massaged down. It was known that Hindu, it was a good idea to be Hindu. So that, that idea, people realized that if they wanted to get a government job, it was probably a good idea to put your, whatever you did at home. So there was this kind of split between what people's actual practical identity was and what they might affirm in public. That people started to understand this political game that you should present yourself as a Hindu. And there were all kinds of arguments for, for, for subsuming Buddhism within Hinduism. The, uh, and these arguments were encouraged by the regime at the time that, for example, you may have heard of the god Vishnu, Hindu god Vishnu and he has ten avatars, well one of the ten is actually the Buddha. So you can say, oh well, the Buddha, Buddhism is a part of Hinduism. Jainism is a part of Hinduism. They are offshoots of the great Hindu um, uh, uh, branch. And so, and, uh, so you could see that these are, these are kind of, they're not completely made up, but they are politically affected. And you can see the big jump in Buddhist uh, identity in 1991, where after the Panchayat regime had fallen, and then another big jump to 10.7 in 2001, um, and I expect a, probably another jump. Of course, the Buddhist activists claim, oh well, you know, 50% of Nepal is Buddhist. That clearly is not borne out by the figures. Um, Anyway, there are, who's a Hindu, who is a Buddhist, and what one should claim? That, the important point to take away from that is this is highly political and um, uh, contentious. Now, the other thing to notice is this new category, Kirati religion. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that. That is actually a kind of ethnic religious category. It basically is saying, it's like talking about kind of English religion or something, or uh, what, what's your religion? Welsh, my religion is Welsh. So it's, the Kiratis are a, the, a group of um, what used to be called tribes or ethnic groups in the far east of the country, the Limbus, the Rais, Sunwas, and so on. And they managed to get, I'm, I'm still trying to find out exactly how they really managed to get this, because this is still very interesting. They managed to get that accepted as a valid category. And you can see there's a big jump from 1991, 1.7, to 2001, 3.6. That's not because the followers of Kirati religion all started having far more children than everyone else. It's because people switched. People who previously would have classified themselves as Hindu started to say, oh, we better call ourselves Kirati. So I've been talking about castes and ethnicities. So in order to understand what comes next, I have to give you a kind of very, very brief overview of what you know, how do we slice up the Nepali population? And the four big categories, if you like, the kind of macro categories in terms of which people nowadays think, are high castes, which would be the Bowen and the Chetri, in other words, Brahman and Kshatriya. And you can see they make up about 31%. The Dalits, that's to say what people used to call untouchables, who are at the part of the same social formation, but at the bottom of the heap. So that's High caste, the Dalits, the Janajatis. Janajatis, are, Janajati is a kind of made-up word to translate the English tribal, uh, made up in the 1930s in India. Uh, uh, so it's what people used to call hill tribes, or now sometimes still use the word ethnic group as a synonym. Uh, and they are mainly these uh, peoples 
uh, who are kind of basically racially mongoloid, but in practice actually very mixed, uh, 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 most of whom, all of whom had their own language, although many have now lost, a lot, a lot of them have lost the language, uh, and they, as I say, they used to be called hill tribes, they're spread out, they all have homelands, although probably more than half, or much as half of each of the population lives outside the homeland now. Uh, and as I said, they're mainly in the hills of Nepal, but there are also a few like the Taru in down in the plains. So those are three, three categories. And the final fourth category is Madeshi. And Madeshi is a, the most contested. Um, it means plains person of hill, of Nepal, a Nepali plains person of originally Indian culture and language. Uh, I'm not going to talk about them because there are very few of them in this country, and, um, but they're very important in the, to understand contemporary Nepal. So, um, the, in a way, the, 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 the two categories, that, I mean, there are some Dalits in this country, and, uh, um, and I certainly don't want to uh, underplay the importance, but the two, the two main categories that are important for understanding the, the diaspora are the kind of Hindu high castes and the um, Janajatis, and those, those are the ones that we'll be focusing on. So, if you start to break down who belongs to which religion by caste or, and slash ethnicity, this is what you get. And um, I've arranged it so that on the far left-hand side, you've got the most Hindu people. And on the far, left -hand, sorry, far right-hand side, you've got the most um, uh, Buddhist. Okay, so the Sherpas, we've all heard of the Sherpas who live around Mount Everest. The Sherpas are basically Tibetan Buddhists. They are Tibetans ethnically. Tibetans linguistically, Tibetans culturally, Tibetans religiously. Sherpa is a Tibetan word. They just happen to have wandered over the mountains 500 years ago and found themselves in what's now Nepal. So Sherpas are basically Tibetans. So it's not surprising that they're all Buddhist. Okay. And on the far left-hand end, of course, you've got the Brahmins and the Chetris, and they're basically all Hindus. But what the, I mean, this is, I won't go into any of the details of this, but what's interesting and fascinating to try and sort out are the groups in the middle. Uh, the mo mainly these Janajati groups, these hill tribal groups, and they have very mixed and sometimes dual or even triple religious identities. So when you compare, when you compare Nepal to Britain, the Nepali populations, the big, big difference is Hinduism is much less dominant. Okay? You can see Hinduism is 80% in Nepal, half that in, in, in this country. Uh, Buddhism, many more people taking Buddhism. And um, the uh, uh, many more, well, and, and many more Kirati as well. This is this, this kind of ethnic religious label. And the reason for that is the fact that certain groups, particularly Janjati groups from the east, the Kirantis, and, and Janjati groups from the west, the Magas and Gurungs, are the groups mainly targeted by Gurkha recruitment. The Ministry of Defense will tell you that Gurkha recruitment is completely ethnically blind. That is complete tosh. Uh, it is very, they do, I mean, historically speaking, it's very well established. There was a long tradition of ideas about military tribes and so on. So it's definitely, all you have to do is compare the ethnic makeup of the people who are recruited to the Gurkhas with the population of Nepal, and you'll see clearly that it cannot be, cannot be the case that it's ethnically blind. The very regions in which they actually recruit um, would go against that. So, in our, in our survey of 300 households, we wanted to be, try and be as subtle as we could about this whole issue of religious identity. So we asked people, what is your religion? And once they recorded the answer, we then asked them again, okay, now listen to this list of possibilities. Now what do you say your religion is? Okay. So, we, in other words, before prompt and after prompt. And you can see the stable stays very stable from before what I showed you before, which was the CNSUK survey. Barnes, nearly all Hindu, the uh, 4.5% are Christian. Sherpas, 100% Buddhist, but in the middle, um, a big spread. And when you do it after prompt, there's even more of a spread. A lot, quite, not, most people stick with what they said before, but a substantial number actually switch once they realize that they're allowed to switch. And this um, this, this, this graph shows you how you know, the number of Hindus switch, drops from 48 to 39%, the number of Buddhists from 25 to 17 and the ones which increase are the joint. So in other words, once people realize they're allowed to choose two religions, quite a few of them take that opportunity and do it. Not surprisingly, the Christians stick exactly with their first answer. So what happens? Who, who, where do they go? 
Uh, and what this table shows is that if you look across the, f the, the, uh, the first row, the Hindus, 579 said Hindu at the beginning and 79.6%. So basically 80% of those people who said Hindu stuck with that after, once they had multiple things were given option. But then quite a few, quite a lot of them went for Hindu plus Buddhist and quite a lot went for Kiranti plus Hindu once they realized they were allowed to have that joint identity. And a large number, almost a third of the people who had answered Buddhist the first time around went for Hindu plus Buddhist. And a lot of, a lot of those were gurus. Gurungs who felt that for political reasons they really should call themselves a Buddhist. But once they were given the option of being both Hindu plus Buddhist, they said, okay, let's be Hindu plus Buddhist, because that actually reflects, that is a better reflection of what we actually do. Now you may wonder, do people do more, are they more religious or less when they come to this country? The answer is, and this is just self-reporting, of course, most of them, um, a more a larger number said they did less uh, than um, uh, than, than, in, than in Nepal, but a certain number, a few, said they did more, and a large, quite a few said, a large number also said they did the same. What's interesting, of course, the outlier there are the Christians, uh, and the Christians are saying we definitely do more now uh, in this country. What do they do? Well, we also, we, so as I say, we got uh, detailed figures on what they actually do. Um, 35 people in the survey of 1,200 actually do more than an hour a day of, 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 of ritual. That's quite interesting. And there are some quite interesting, we're still working on these figures and still trying to figure out what they mean and, and, and digging down into how to interpret them. The, uh, there are quite interesting and significant differences between different ethnic groups. Bounds and Chetris, who are often thought to be the same, you know, have the same culture, significant differences between them in their daily practice. Uh, and we also, one of the things we asked whether, is whether they had visited Nepal in the last couple of years and what for, and we asked them if they had gone to religious temples, which ones had they gone to. Uh, and we were also interested to try and find out how many people are actually using religious specialists for practical purposes. That is to say, uh, are, they using it when they, are they using them when they have illness? Are they using them um, uh, for other kinds of uh, family problems? Uh, are they consulting them? Uh, for uh, you know for the right time to get married and so on and the answer is yes they a large number of them are certainly doing that Jyotish is an astrologer so large numbers of them are consulting astrologer and we also wanted to find out which of the festivals they perform uh, and how often and uh, the answers were pretty much as one might expect we also included a small side study of Belgium to try and compare Nepalis in this country with Nepalis in Belgium and there were some very interesting differences that came out. Uh, if anything, the Nepalis in Belgium is a very small population, um, definitely less than 10,000, maybe even only 7,000 or so. So they have 37 organizations, which on a per capita basis is actually even more than the UK. Um, asylum seekers loom, loom much larger in the Belgian population than in the UK. And they have... Religion is much less a focus of debate and contestation in Belgium than it is in the UK, because in Belgium it's all about politics. Uh, political parties are terrifically important there, and uh, everybody belongs to the associate to a party or to a uh, organisation linked to a, a particular party. Religion seems to be the one sphere where they can be all united. Okay, so now this is getting really deep down into some of the detail. And one of the things we're interested in is the relationship between what people actually do and what they say they do. Yeah. It's a kind of classic old anthropological theme, the tension between the two. And in many cases, in many, many cases, there actually isn't that much of a tension. Okay? So you can see some examples here where people call themselves like the top right hand the top left hand, sorry, Hindu mugger, the, you know, he calls himself a Hindu and what his practice is Hindu. So there's not that much of a tension. But in some cases where you have these very simple home shrines, there is a bit of a tension. So uh, the top right hand picture is, comes from a man who, or a family I should say, who say return their religion as Kirati, but actually their practice is Hindu. Okay. Sometimes people have multiple identities, as I've said. So you would, add, you would expect that to be reflected in their shrines, and indeed it is. Uh, so uh, the bottom right hand here, the, um, uh, the Gurung family, they say that they're Buddhist, 
but the actual practice, as is demonstrated by both what they report in the questionnaire and by the photograph of their shrine, is that it's very mixed. It's both Hindu and Buddhist. And on the bottom left is someone, uh, a family which report themselves to be all three, to follow Kirat, Buddhism, and Hinduism. These are some, just some examples of much more elaborate, and so most people have these kind of relatively simple shrines, if they have one at all. Uh, some, though, go a very uh, big way and have the, this Chirtagale uh, um, lives in Farnborough. That's his, on the outside, it looks, looks like a Commonwealth Garden 1960s garage, but on the inside, it's a wonderful Tibetan Lama's temple uh, where many, many people come and visit and make offerings, and the, uh, the statues are sometimes taken out for big events. Now, internal cultural debates. So different groups within the Nepalese, uh, these debates line up differently. The Gurungs, who are the biggest, interestingly, they're only about, I think it's 2% in the Nepali population, they're about 20, 22% of the population in this country. So they are the dominant, one of the, the dominant groups here, if not the dominant group. What, what is their religion? They cannot agree. They all agree that Gurung should have one religion, but they cannot agree on what that one religion should be. So they've accepted that modernist assumption. We should all have one religion. But even though they know, they know, of course they know, it's a fact, they cannot deny it, that there are Christian Gurungs, there are Buddhist Gurungs, there are Hindu Gurungs, they know that as a fact, but nonetheless, they feel that it ought not to be so. So there are fierce, fierce debates on what they should be. And of course, they're all agreed now, even though in practice many gurus are Hindus and do worship Hindu gods and practice Hindu rituals and believe in Hindu teachers. Nonetheless, it's agreed gurus should not be Hindu because that's a political step. They're trying to throw off the yoke of the high castes from the past. So what does that leave? Well, it leaves either Buddhism or it leaves shamanism. And the, the gurus have a, a, a very vibrant or used to have a very vibrant tradition of shamanism uh, that's, the shamans had oral texts, which they remembered from a long time back. They would learn them by heart, and it includes, of course, quite a lot of animal sacrifice um, and getting possessed. And, but at the same time, the gurus have long had uh, a tradition of Buddhism. In fact, one of their clans is called the Lama clan because they were traditionally the Buddhist teachers. So, in a sense, I mean, I've, the pictures kind of have condensed this extremely complicated and subtle debate into the opposition between two figures. On the left, on the left you've got Lama Chowong, who's a high lama from Dolpo, who is now one of the Gurkha Brigade's Buddhist pundits. So the Gurkha Brigade has agreed now that not all its soldiers are Hindu. Okay? Up until very recently, they only had Hindu pundits. Now they have Buddhist ones as well. He's based up in Katrick, but he travels around the country and performs rituals for people. Uh, and and um, there's another uh, uh, Buddhist pundit who's based in, in uh, Farnborough, uh, who's been on a tour of Afghanistan, for example. So he's on the left, and on the right you have this highly um, charismatic Gurung shaman, Hoju Yarjung, who uh, has helped more than one anthropologist with their PhD, and uh, is himself a great intellectual, and his life work is to scripturalize his tradition. So he has been writing down and recording uh, the chants so that he's turning what is, was an oral tradition into a scriptural tradition. And he's got lots of followers who he's, whom he's training up. Now, why is, the, why is this such a fierce debate? Well, because people die. Okay? And when people die, you have to do something. And you cannot just say, oh, I'll do everything. You have to decide what are you going to do? Which priest are you going to call? And which ritual are you going to do? And when are you going to do it? And where? That is when the choice becomes really stark. Okay? And Flo's going to write her PhD about this. Uh, uh, and she's got lots of inside stories about how people are coping. Because this is a very new problem. Very new problem. Until recently, the practice was take the body back to Nepal and do whatever we used to do back then. But now... People are having to adapt to British ways. They're having to decide here. And there are fierce debates about... And, and everybody gets involved. Everybody feels they have a right to get involved and tell people, no, you should do it this way. You come from this clan, therefore you've got to do that. I don't care that your village tradition may have been this, but you've got to do that. So, you know, or this shamanistic stuff is all superstition. You shouldn't go anywhere near that. Buddhism is the way of the future, etc., etc. So you have these very fierce debates. 
And the other group, which has not quite as fierce as the Gurungs, I guess nobody's as fierce as the Gurungs, but the Limbus are also pretty torn by which religion should they follow. And the Limbus are the group in the farthest eastern corner of Nepal, just, and some of them are actually over the border in India, in Sikkim and Darjeeling. And um, they also have a vibrant traditional shamanic tradition, oral tradition, and, but they also, they're much less Hinduized than people in the West, like the Gurung. So they're, they're, they're uh, well, no, that's a gross generalization. Some of them, of course, are Hinduized, but um, the influence is, of Brahmins has been much more recent and less deep. I think it's fair to say that, they're certainly than the Moggers and so on. But uh, they have their own, if you like, I mean, it doesn't call itself Hindu, it calls itself a separate religion, this Kiranti religion, Sakyahangma. And it's, it, but it's very Brahmanical. In it. you, the people, they dress in white, they're vegetarians, they don't sacrifice animals, they don't drink alcohol, they, uh, they, they, they have a version of the Hindu sacred syllable Om, they have their own tradition. It's very impressive liturgical tradition. This is, a, this is one of those beautiful days back in May when we, had, we thought we were going to have a nice summer. We had two weeks, if you remember, of beautiful sunny weather. And Bhagavad and I went over to Swindon, to Coates Park. And it was, it, was, it was like being in a dream. You went into this beautiful park with a big lake, and then you're around the corner into a little kind of green cul-de-sac. And there was this big gazebo full of Nepalis uh, performing this amazing uh, Satyahang ritual, which, from the outside, you'd think this is Hinduism. They're doing a fire sacrifice. They're chanting all kinds of stuff in a sacred language. Um, uh, but it's actually Limbu. It's actually Limbu written in the old Limbu script. Uh, and um, the, the leader is this Ramkumar Tebi, who's there uh, on, on the right with the white cap, who's extremely learned and one of them, but he's not the only one um, in this particular tradition. So the Limbus are also torn between should we follow the old traditional stuff with its alcohol and its animal sacrifice, or should we go with this modern, cleaned up, ascetic version? So these are, these are, that's I've already given you, these are just some of the differences between what's going on in Nepal and what's going on in, 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 in this country. Um, obviously, there are certain pra problems with practicing traditional shaman, shamanism in this country. Clearly, it's not, you can't go out into the street and start sacrificing buffaloes or goats, and, and people are aware of that. Um, People are conscious, they've been very conscious, they don't want to create a bad impression. So even people who follow the shamanic accept that it has to be adapted in certain ways. There's also the problem, as I say, of adapting. How do you, if you're using a British crematorium, how do you squeeze what might have been a whole day's ritual into half an hour, which is the maximum slot you'll be given? Um, so those are some sort of differences. Certain things are... are what happens here is simply a reflection of what's happening uh, back home in Nepal. So, um, these are some of my conclusions about uh, 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 the Nepali community. Um, this politicization has intensified both there and here. Um, different cultural histories, different local histories make a massive difference. Uh, not all Nepalis are the same by any means. It depends on what the context is. So in some contexts, when you're talking about organizations, categories matter a lot, whether you're Hindu, whether you're Buddhist. In personal religion, it matters somewhat less. It's possible to combine, and people don't mind that. And then in what I call instrumental religion, that is to say when people are sick and they want to get better, or when they have some very personal crisis that they want to deal with in a religious way, at that level, it really, the different identities, the different categories into which you might be put, hardly matter at all. So if you have a very powerful healer who's a Buddhist, but you're a Hindu, you'll still go to them, and vice versa. Okay, I promised, we promised to the AHRC that we would come up with some deep conclusions about religion. What is religion? Uh, so here we go, here's my attempt. Um, so one of, the, uh, one of the things is to attack this Protestant assumption that you can only have one religion. You must have only one religion, okay? And this Protestant assumption even continues when people convert to Tibetan Buddhism. So here's a, here's a, a, a Rigpa pamphlet for 
and then uh, going along to become a meditator. But the pamphlet says, you're only allowed to tick one box. God forbid, you can't possibly be a meditation mandala student and an ongongro mandala student. No, no, you must be one or the other. So that kind of exclusivism continues. And actually, it's very, it's very fascinating that it's part of our own common sense too, because if you think back to the 2011 census form, which you must all have filled out, you may remember, in the nationality question, where are you English, Scottish, Welsh, or whatever, we were encouraged to tick as many boxes as applied. So you could be, you could be English, Scottish, and Welsh if you wanted to. In the ethnicity question, we were only allowed to tick one box. Okay, you couldn't tick, oh, I'm African and I'm Chinese or whatever. You could only tick one box, although it did have mixed categories. Okay, so there were, it was, it, you could only tick one box, but it did at least allow for the possibility that some people might be mixed. In religion, you could only tick one box and there was no mixed category. And I actually rang up the helpline for the census and said, I see this question about religion. Professional pest. I said, really, I, I see this question about religion. Am I allowed to tick more than one box under religion? And then she said, Oh, I've never thought about that. I don't see why not. So she said, Go ahead. I said, You know, look, you can do it under nationality. Why can't we do it? She said, Yeah, fine, go ahead. So Krishna then got in contact with the National Census Office and said, Is this true? Are you really allowed to tick? more than one box in religion. I said, no, absolutely not. If she said that, she was wrong. You can't. If we tick more than one box, we'll only take the first one. We won't take the others. So we, where does this assumption come from? What does it mean? Um, and these are just my slides from my standard anthropology of religion um, lectures. So I'm just going to give it to you without really much explanation. But my, my theory is that we've really got to break down this category of religion. We've got to get rid of this idea that religion is just one thing and that you can, it doesn't change or that it has an unchanging essence everywhere and in all human ages. Clearly, that is not the case. And I think we have to break it down uh, into at least three things. One is soteriology, that's to say a path to salvation, it may be a teaching of salvation, it may be a book or it may not be a book, but anyway, it's a path to salvation, a way of getting salvation from everything. And then on the other hand, you've got worldly religion, and world religion also breaks down into two different things. On the one hand, there is what I call social or communal religion, that is to say, the religion of the group, the religion that sanctifies the stages of life and the seasons of the year. And on the other hand, instrumental religion, that is to say, religion that is trying to do something. It's, it's kind of trying to make rain uh, uh, happen or make somebody recover from sickness. And if you want to have a kind of brief mnemonic about it, um, the, the, the first, the, the, big, the big name theorist who mainly kind of theorized type 1 or R1 is Weber, the theorist who mainly uh, uh, theorized and gave us a model for how to think about type 2 or R2 is Durkheim and the theorist who said most or at least started off the tradition of thinking systematically about type 3 was James Fraser of the Golden Bough. So that's just a kind of uh, a brief coda about you know, types of religion and what, how we should say about religion. Now if you still um, uh, we've got a little bit of time for questions which I'd be delighted to take and I've also got my team here if you ask me a question that's so difficult that I can't answer it um, if after all of this you still want to find out yet more about the Nepali community in this country the Centre for Nepal Studies has produced a little book uh, and of course I'm sure under the rules of the alumni weekend we're not allowed to sell anything because it hasn't got the Oxford logo on it but as a, you can certainly have one if you like um, for a small contribution or sort of donation to the Centre for Nepal Studies of five pounds would that be appropriate? Yes five pounds if, you, if, if that's it but don't feel obliged only if you want to know yet more about the Nepali community in this country. So that's my lecture I'll be very happy to take questions if you have any.